I uh, once read an article in which the author and then head of World Vision related a story which brought me back to a simple but profound reality about the kingdom of God. That power is perfected in weakness. The author writes, in the early 1990s, I visited an orphanage in Romania. Something was wrong, terribly wrong. Every child in the orphanage was less than God intended. Each was in some state of despair. The orphanage was home to the deaf, the blind, the mentally retarded, the physically disabled. And I was greeted by a nine-year-old boy without an arm. Laurentiu, 10 years old, had only stumps for legs. There was a lad on a skateboard with no legs at all, pushing himself close to us. And he began to massage my friend's calves as if to say, why did you get to be born whole and not me? The common denominator, the human tie that bound each of these kids was that each was a product of a failed abortion. Someone had tried to destroy life in the womb. The weaponry was arranged against them and they became veterans of a foreign war before they were even born. But they won that war. They were born anyway and they are alive but permanently scarred mentally, physically or both. Another young man came up to me and asked in perfect English, do you love Jesus? My first thought was cynical. This is a scam. This is part of a setup, an emotional come on to milk the fat cats from the West. But it was certainly no scam. He writes, the director of the orphanage was a Christian. He taught his charges a little English and a lot about Jesus. We experienced love and hope and amazing grace as we toured the orphanage, seeing various Bible stories unfold in pictures and words which decorated each room. And the orphanage was a beam of hope in the despair that was Romania's child care program at the start of that decade. And the hope was highly personal. I have been a Christian all my life, he says, but I can't remember anyone ever asking me this question before, do you love Jesus? Now, I've debated theology to the point of anger and broken relations, watched my church split over denominational issues, and witnessed other denominational fights that sapped energy, eroded Christian credibility, and destroyed any hope of the power and the promise of a unified body of Christ. Never before, however, has any Christian asked me this profound question of our time or any time, do you love Jesus? The Lord used a little orphan kid who almost wasn't born to challenge me with the most important thing in life, returning love to the one who first loved us. Have you ever been suddenly snapped back into the reality of what the ministry of the gospel is really all about? Have you ever been reminded where the power really lies? Have you and I forgotten what model and what kind of messengers Jesus has always used to change the world for Christ? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would. 
And I want to read to you verses 18 to 25, which will set up the context of what we're going to be looking at today. It begins with verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Have you and I forgotten the simple, almost paradoxical principle that God's power is magnified when it is filtered through our weakness? Do we need to be reminded of a truth that is even more provocative that the weaker the man or the woman, the greater the magnification of God? I think we do need to be reminded of that. I'm convinced that we do. You just take a brief look around this room, and I know you can't see the people in that room, but you people in that room, you look around the room and do a brief mental scan. If I were to ask you to pick out who you think had the qualifications to preach a powerful message, who would you pick? If you were to list the top three choices around the room of this group to do outreach ministry, who would you likely choose? If I were to ask you who might be a candidate for a pastor, who would you consider? If I were to ask you why there aren't more of you actively involved in reaching people for Christ through some service project or personal ministry, what excuse would you give? I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough, not bold enough. I can't speak well enough in front of people. I'm not talented, talented enough. These are all the excuses that we use, aren't they? Don't you see that if you're talking like that, that you have succumbed to this world's philosophy of things? The American Idol Syndrome having the whole package. But that's not the way it works with God, is it? It's not the way it works with God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. When God wants to measure a man or a woman for his use, he does not measure the height of their stature or the weight of their influence. He doesn't count on the breadth of their knowledge or the length of their experience. He measured, measures the depth of their hearts for Christ. Do you love Jesus? 
When it's all said and done, the bottom line criteria for being used powerfully by God is the innocent question that will silence the strongest and the brightest and the noblest and the most influential person the world has to offer. Do you love Jesus? These are the ones God will use to change the complexion of this world. The simple fact of the matter is that when he enlists people for work, and you've heard this cliche before, but it's absolutely true. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, pick it up in verse 26, and this is the text I really want to unpack this morning. I'm going to read it to you out of the message. You can follow along in your Bibles. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose the nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate from a fresh start comes by, from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saving grace. If you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. Boy, how we need that. Listen to the steamy words of Martin Luther from a Lenten meditation that he once wrote. Quote, it is the nature of God to make something out of nothing. Consequently, if someone is nothing, God can make something out of him. Men make something into something else, but this is vain and useless work. Thus, God accepts no one except the abandoned, makes no one healthy but the sick gives no one sight except the blind, brings no one to life except the dead, makes mercy upon no one except the wretched, and gives no one grace except those who have not grace. Consequently, no proud person can become holy, wise, or righteous, or become the material with which God's work, God works, or have God's work in him. But he remains in his own works and makes a fabricated, fake, and simulated saint out of himself. And that is a hypocrite, unquote. Friends, if we are relying on our own abilities to do his work, we're giving ourselves way too much credit. If we're refusing to work for him because we feel that we have no ability, we're not giving God enough credit. In any given church, I believe there are, these are the two most common errors that people fall into. And what results from that is a stunted ministry. But God doesn't want a stunted ministry. He wants a strong ministry. He wants a strategic ministry. He wants a ministry that makes great strides for the kingdom of God. And he's planning on using you to accomplish it. Weaknesses and all. This is a necessary and important follow-up to the great message that Pastor Chris preached last week. Let me ask you a question. How many of you believe that God's power can be magnified through you? 
Have you ever considered that the weakness which you believe is keeping you from God's service is actually the very thing that God wants to filter his power through? What we need is a transformed perception. Every one of us has weaknesses that we are convinced prevent us from being used by God. Am I right? Yet a careful study of Scripture shows that all the people that God ever used mightily in the Bible were convinced of the very same exact thing. Sarah was an old woman when she gave birth to a son that would be the progenitor of a great nation, right? Moses had a speech problem. David was just a shepherd boy. Peter was an uneducated fisherman. Timothy was timid and shy. The fact is that all of them were weak at some point, and so are you, and so am I. What they needed and what we need is what the Scripture reminds us of today, that God is not calling people into usefulness based on their human qualifications. He is qualifying them for usefulness on the basis of his call, plain and simple. And you know what that is? That's an incredible paradox, an incredible paradox. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty not many noble. I heard Donald Gray Barnhouse once say that God is the greatest junk dealer in the entire world. <laughs> he was right, because God is the quintessential repurposer. His kingdom is like one gigantic garage sale. The world's trash becomes his treasure. Through his regenerating power, he turns the rabble into the righteous, the ragamuffins into royalty. He turns failures into followers. He turns hoodlums into heroes. He turns prostitutes into pillars and sinners into saints and you and me into his sons and daughters. These are the people through whom Christ is building his church. If you were to survey a handful of today's most prominent corporate executives as, how, as to how to build a successful business, I could almost guarantee you that they would not begin with hiring people from Skid Row. Guaranteed. They'd be looking for the hottest young stars of the corporate world with fresh marketing strategies, quick minds, impressive degrees, social and political contacts, and a solid reputation. The world system exalts knowledge and power and prestige, and people entrenched in that system are impressed by exclusivity. They thrive on having the intellectual and political and societal edge over everybody else. But that's not how God operates in the church. Verse 26 and 27. For consider your calling. Read it again, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. My goodness. 
is there a more relevant message to today for our time? Look at the context of this letter. These Corinthians were encountering major problems in the church, if you read from the beginning of chapter 1. They were having clashes over personalities, and philosophers and philosophies were threatening to splinter their unity. That's what it says in verses 11 through 13. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I, might, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul got vehement about those kinds of divisions in the church. They were adopting the pattern of the world is what they were doing. There was no church like the Corinthian church that adopted the patterns of the world. Maybe the Laodicean church in Revelation. They were rallying around their preferred leaders and missing the point entirely that God was not about to build his church around philosophies and personalities. It was going to be built around the power of the gospel. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is God going to, what is Christ going to build the church around? That. The power of the word of the cross, the gospel. And the people who are committed to that gospel. The strength of the gospel and the impact of the church neither was nor is about intellectual savvy, political prowess, or social prestige. It's about the power of God working through people of God regardless of who they are or how much they know. The fact is our calling, our effectual saving call of God that resulted in our salvation was not based on our brilliance, not our beauty, not our noble character. God didn't call any of us because we were so stinking smart that he couldn't build his church without us. He didn't save us because we graduated at the top 10 of our class or attended the best schools in the country or managed to become financially secure. Uh-uh, I would almost guarantee that he saved many of us, many of you, in spite of that fact. Not because of them. Let's face it, folks. Some of these things are the very obstacles that keep people from coming to Christ, Right? No, he saved us not on the basis of good things that we have done, but because of his mercy, right? It was by his grace through faith. It was a gift. That's what Titus 3, 5 says and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. God is not anxiously wringing his hands and looking for millionaires and famous athletes and actors and celebrities and musicians and motivational speakers and creative geniuses so to save so that he can do his work better. You think he's doing that? I think right now he's stripping everybody of that. Yes, they are as eligible as for salvation as anyone else, and God does use those people to build his church, but they don't have a corner market on it, but they have to come by faith, empty of themselves with a humble heart, no pride, in order for God to use them the way that he wants to. That's just the mere fact of the matter in the Scripture. How many times have you said something like, oh, if only so-and-so 
would get saved. Oh, what a tool God would have to build his church with that person, right? I've often said it. Boy, wouldn't it be great if God saved the Beatles? Wow, what a worship team that would be. Do you think that got the way God chooses his instruments? Not really. Listen to what John MacArthur once said, quote, God's wisdom is a kind of paradox. In human thinking, strength is strength, weakness is weakness, and intelligence is intelligence. But in God's economy, some of the seemingly strongest things are the weakest. Some of the seemingly weakest things are the strongest. And some of the seemingly wisest things are the most foolish. The paradox is not by accident. It's by God's design. A simple, watch this now, mark this one. A simple, uneducated, untalented, and clumsy believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and who faithfully and humbly follows his Lord is immeasurably wiser than a brilliant PhD who scoffs at the gospel. I once read that Selena Hastings, the Countess of Huntington, was among the first of the British aristocracy to be reached by the Methodist revival that spread across England in the 18th century. And she was a personal friend of the great revivalist George Whitfield. Lady Huntington used to say that she was going to heaven by an M. You say, what does that mean? And when someone asked her what she meant by that, she stated that she was so thankful that the scriptures, this scripture says, did not say, not any noble are called, but not many noble. Therefore, she got in by an M. <laughs> now, if God were to operate as the world does and select only those who are considered valuable by the world's standards, he would counteract the very thing that he's trying to get people to see, that he is a Lord that is full of grace and full of power, and he does miracles in people's lives. Has the contemporary church forgotten that? God has never changed his approach to ministry. And do, I do not think that he's about to now. But to read the countless articles written on this kind of leadership qualities that are needed in today's churches, you would think that he has. To lead effective ministries today, even now during these challenging, previously unnavigated waters of a global pandemic, Churches are told they must be equipped with powerful vision casters and technological experts, creative consultants, financial planners, cutting-edge communicators, and marketing specialists. Really? Is that what God intimates here in this text? Is that what God used to turn the world upside down in the book of Acts? They didn't have streaming live services. But they had a whole lot bigger response to preaching the gospel than we ever get. Maybe I'm reading my scriptures wrong. Has the current megachurch model come up with new insights that press us beyond the realm of scripture? Those things may be helpful that I just mentioned, but they are not necessary. The first century church had more impact on the world than we do, and they had no streaming services, as I just said. They didn't have blogs. They didn't have YouTube channels. And thank goodness they didn't have Facebook. 
what they had and what is still necessary is an absolute heart for Jesus. Do you love Jesus? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your face would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Friends, let me ask you a very important question this morning. Which do you think is the most important light in your home? The large chandelier in the dining room or the night light that keeps you from stubbing your toe when you get up at night to go to the bathroom? Which is the most important one? It may be small, but seemingly insignificant, but it's more useful than the one for show. Well, now, I could be totally wrong in this, but maybe your favorite light is the one that comes on when you open the refrigerator in the middle of the night. (laughs) Fact is that God doesn't work the same way we do, does he? He's not looking for chandeliers that look good to the world. He's looking for nightlights that stop people from getting tripped up in their spiritual lives. And you and I are called to be the light of the world. Didn't we get that message last week? Again, all we need to do is look at the history of God's calling and this text comes alive. Moses was speechless. Sarah was childless. Jeremiah was hopeless. Amos was credentialless. John the Baptist was jobless, homeless, and without an education, held no status, had a limited wardrobe, and was constantly having a bad hair day. He ate locusts for crying out loud. He did no miracles, had no pull, yet Jesus called him the greatest man who ever lived in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. John Newton, of amazing grace fame, right, was heartless before God got a hold of him. Fanny Crosby, she wrote many, many, many hymns, blessed assurance being one of them was sightless. Johnny Erickson Tata is limbless. Yet God used them all. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped by the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong. Friends, nothing has changed. One man has said, weakness and insufficiency color the climate in which God's strength is made manifest. It's an incredible paradox. But secondly, it's an inconceivable plan, humanly speaking. Look at verses 27 and 28. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things 
that are. Notice the repetition. God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. It's his plan. That's why it's so incomprehensible to the entire world. It is by his sovereign selection that the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised nobodies of the world are somebodies to God. Verse 27 here, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That word foolish, it's, it's a Greek word in which we derive our word moron. That's right. So the preaching of the cross then is what's going on here. The preaching of the cross and the acceptance of Jesus Christ by faith for the forgiveness of our sins and the resulting gift of eternal life appears absolutely moronic to those who see human wisdom as a means to their salvation. It appears as foolishness to them. And really, it kind of is from a worldly standpoint. Not that it's unintelligible or that it requires a complete sacrifice of our intellect in order to accept it. Its foolishness lies in the context, in the content of the gospel. What is that? A crucified Savior. How in the world can somebody on a cross save the world? It's foolishness in the world's eyes. In the world's eyes, Jesus was the ultimate failure. Oswald Chambers put it bluntly. He said, quote, Jesus Christ's life was an absolute failure, failure from every standpoint but God's. What, what seemed failure from man's standpoint was a tremendous triumph for God, from God's because God's purpose is never man's purpose. Christ the crucified one is the radically weak one in the world's terms and every Christian who leans on him therefore must necessarily be weak in the world's estimation. And that's true, isn't it? You find that to be true in the world? Don't people think of your salvation, some of your friends that don't want to re receive Christ, don't they think of your salvation as a crutch? You weren't strong enough to make it on your own, so you needed Jesus to bail you out. Human wisdom claims that we can make it. Paul fires off his own charge against that kind of philosophy in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 18 and 19. Paul says, No one should fool himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise by this world's standards, he should become a fool in order to be really wise, for what this world considers to be wisdom is nonsense in God's light, God's sight. But where has our so-called wisdom brought us in the world? Paul raises that question in verse 20. Look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? Where is it? The world is completely frustrated 
by the fact that its wisdom is powerless to combat the emptiness and the loneliness and dissatisfaction of life without Christ, never mind COVID-19. They're not going to find a cure to this thing and they're not going to get rid of this thing until God says, it's time. It is not going to happen. Where are those who have refined human wisdom to the point that it has eliminated war, for example? Hunger or crime, poverty or immoral behavior. Where has the impressive rhetoric about education and tolerance and political correctedness brought humanity? Where has it brought us? In fact, this human wisdom has changed nothing Ultimately, the sin problem is still the sin problem, isn't it? It still plagues the world. Human wisdom is spiritually ineffective. And the church needs to see this truth, especially now. The philosophers, intellectuals, sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists, politicians, and so-called wise men and women of our age have never ever found a solution to the sin problem, nor have they ever brought us one step closer to God. Only Christ in the gospel has done that. The radical levels of violence and pornography and divorce, alcoholism, adultery, drug abuse, depression, suicide, and the universal evil that we see in this world bring those who trust in human wisdom to a blush. That's literally what Paul says here in this text. God has chosen the foolishness of the gospel to shame the wise. The word is kataiskune, which means to bring the world, to make the world red in the face. That's literally what the Greek says. And he's chosen the things of the world and considers that, that the world considers as weak to confound the strong. We have a tendency to think that intellectuals must be won to Christ by other intellectuals. You think that's true? That we have to develop some sort of intellectual presentation to give them of the gospel. Well, it could be helpful to get an ear from them, but listen, it is essential that we develop those things to grasp the truth so that, they, that we can accurately represent it to people who ask of the hope that is in us. They're giving it with gentleness and respect. But the bottom line is, and mark this one well, my friends, mark it well. No one, absolutely no one is won to Christ by intellectual prowess. It is the work of God, period. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, someone's heart. Doctors, college professors, lawyers, and scientists have all been led to Christ by all kinds of peoples, Jan janitors, dirt movers, housewives, and children. I've, seen a four I've witnessed this. I've witnessed a four-year-old child bring a full-grown man to total conviction of his sin by the simple personal question, do you love Jesus? Psalm. Chapter 8, Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, thou, you have established strength because of your foes. 
to still the enemy and the avenger. I remember a man by the name of Sterling Fisher. Now, this was going way back in the early days of my Christianity. Who was in our former church, the first church that we ever, and the only other church besides Fayette that we ever attended as a member. He was the epitome of this, these verses. Sterling to the world, he was just a shaky old man. He was 80 plus years old when we were there. Who stuttered. He couldn't, he couldn't actually get a sentence out without stuttering so badly. You just kind of wanted to, you know how that, you just want to push him. Finish the sentence for him. But periodically, he would stand up in the service on Sunday morning when the pastor asked for testimonies. And we could see it, you know, he'd be getting up and put his hands on the back of the pew and then he'd start in his broken, stuttered, shaky voice giving testimony to the glory of God. And whenever he stood to give testimony to the glory of God in that church fell silent, absolutely silent. No one, no matter how strong, no matter how academic, could refute what Jesus had done in that man's life. Not one person. And I got to say, he was, I remember before I left that church to go to Bible college and to come here. He didn't have many words, but he came up to me with his shaky hands and he shook my hand. And that was encouragement enough to know that he supported me. As someone once described it, God's efforts are strongest when ours are useless, not weakest, useless. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is enough for you. When you are weak, my power is made perfect in you. So I am very happy to brag about my weaknesses, Paul says. Then Christ's power can live in me. For this reason, I am happy when I have weaknesses, insults, and hard times, and sufferings, and all kinds of troubles for Christ. Because when I am weak, then I am truly strong. There is no one too weak in themselves to be powerful in Christ. But I gotta tell you, there are many too strong in themselves to be used of Christ. When we think we're doing God a favor by being on his team, we become the weakest link in the chain. In a book that's out of print now called Broken in the Right Place, Alan Nelson, the author, he used this story of a young preacher who went to preach his first sermon. And he had done so much work on this masterpiece of a sermon that he was full of his own arrogance and importance. And he entered the pulpit with tremendous confidence. But once up there, he blanked out and he couldn't think of a single word. He couldn't remember anything that he had prepared. Finally, he came down from the pulpit utterly humiliated. And as he slumped down the steps, an old preacher said to him, and I can imagine this guy being like Sterling Fisher that I just described to you, he said to him, quote, if you'd have gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. Unquote. God's power 
is continually being brought to maturity through those who are weak in and of themselves. It's an incredible paradox. It's an inconceivable plan, and it's all for a reason, because God's got an all-inclusive purpose. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. You know what Isaiah 42, 8 says? It says, I will not give my glory to another. That's God's words. I will not give my glory to another. He won't. Not a chance. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul writes, by, by grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So that no one would boast. And that's what he says right here as well in verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. If you understand this verse, and you understand that there is nothing you and I have to blow our horns about. Nothing. This phrase has been going through my, my head all week since I, since I started studying these verses and looking at them. I am nothing. And there's a song about that that we used to sing in this church. I'm nothing without you. I am nothing. That's what we should be posting on Facebook. I am nothing. I am nothing. Not even the fact that we believe makes us something. Because it didn't happen on your own that you believed. You might be thinking, well, I had to receive him. That's something. Yes, you had to respond to him by faith, but you realize that even your faith was given to you by God? John chapter 6, verse 44 says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You were chosen by God. You didn't decide to choose him. It wasn't your wise decision that got you saved. God drew you, then you responded. If you have the notion that you were smart enough to decide to come to Christ, you don't understand the concept of the gospel and you don't understand the concept of God's amazing grace. It is as ludicrous as the beaver staring at the immense wall of Hoover Dam and saying these words, nope, I didn't actually build it myself, but it was based on an idea of mine. <laughs> hey, your salvation was not your idea. It was by God's grace and by his grace alone. He purposely designed it that way so that none of us would think that we're all that. So that no one would boast before God. Verse 30 clarifies this. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let me say it again. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. That's the incredible paradox. It's an inconceivable plan with an all-inclusive purpose. And in the end, we receive an invaluable possession. That's verses 30 and 31. 
By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Through our relationship to Christ, we are placed in this position beyond anything that we could attain in the world. In Christ, this is what we gain. I'll unpack it really quick. First of all, we gain a clear focus. It says we have wisdom from God. Colossians 2, 3 says that in him, meaning Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom and knowledge? You need to come to Christ. That's where you're going to get it. When you're in Christ, you possess a wisdom that is beyond what the world could ever offer you. In Christ, you gain an understanding of the truth, and it is the truth that sets you free. There are three things that most people in the world want to know in life. You know what they are? Three things that have baffled philosophers, scientists, and the greatest intellectual thinkers of the world since the beginning of time and things which people search hard after all their lives. Here they are. Where they came from, your origin, what they're doing here, your meaning and significance, and where they're going, the future. Do you realize that every person who comes to Christ finds the answers to each of those perplexing questions? He answers all of those questions. You can read it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, and verses 17 and 19. In Christ, we have a clear focus. We have wisdom. Secondly, we have a clean status. It says we have righteousness in verse 30. In Christ, we have something that the world will never know apart from a relationship with Christ, a clean slate before God. Right standing. A righteousness not of our own half-baked imagination, but perfect before God. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 21, I mean chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, meaning Christ. Chuck Swindoll told this story, which I think is just perfect. A friend of mine, he said, who graduated from the same seminary I graduated from, had, has a bright red scar, a birthmark across the side of his face. It's like a burn scar, and it stretches in an unattractive, obvious fashion down his forehead and across his nose and across a large section of his mouth and his neck. As far as I can tell, this man has absolutely no difficulty with inferiority. That is, to say the least, unusual. One day, he says, I worked up the courage to ask him how it was that he could be so effective on his feet and trust God to use him without apparent concern about his looks. He said, because of my dad. My dad taught me as far back as I can remember that this part of my face was where an angel must have kissed me before I was born. He said to me, son, this marking was for dad so that I might know that you are mine, that you have been marked out by God just to remind me that you're my son. And so he said, all through my younger days, as I grew up, I was reminded by my dad, you are the most important, special fellow on this earth. And to tell you the truth, he told me, I got to where I felt sorry for people who didn't have a birthmark on their face. This is what we have in Christ. No matter who you are, no matter what weakness you have, Jesus says, you're mine. You're the most important person on the face of the earth to me. And we have a changed character. That's sanctification, it says here in verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11 says this. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that would be one sad story if it ended right there. But Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's what it got to be one of the most hopeful scriptures in the Bible. You were sanctified. It means God has set you apart for his use in Christ. Sanctification is nothing more than the fact that God has claimed you for his own. He's marked you out for his own. It means that now you now not only have a new purity inwardly, but a new position and purpose in life outwardly. You have the ability to live in obedience to his will, it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. The grace of having a new character doesn't mean immediate sinlessness or even eventual perfection in this life. Don't get me wrong. But the good news is that we can stop lying to ourselves about sin. We can admit that we struggle with it but by no means ever condone it. It means that we don't have to be caked with spiritual makeup in order to be presentable to God. He knows us as we are, but because of Christ's righteousness in us, he accepts us. And it's constantly at work perfecting us from glory to glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. In Christ, we gain a clear focus. We gain a clean status. We gain a changed character. But my friend, do not forget that ours was a costly relationship. We gain redemption, it says in verse 30. I guess you could say that we're the high-maintenance side of this relationship. Right? To redeem means to buy back. Jesus purchased us out of the slave market of sin. And we came, that whole thing came, we came at a high price to him. And not with money, and not with stocks, and not with bonds, but with something a whole lot more costly and precious, his blood. His blood. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. That is something that the world cannot offer you. No world can offer you that. All the world's wisdom cannot attain to that. No political power can promise that. And no amount of social prestige could ever guarantee you that. It's available only in one way, by the grace of Jesus Christ. And by coming to him, responding to that grace in faith. And you know what? It takes a humble man or woman to accept that offer. Have you? Tell me, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Because at the end of the day, we have only one standard of accountability. We need to ask ourselves, did we move people in the direction of the kingdom? a kingdom synonymous with its king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Did the good news of the gospel emerge out of our work? 
Has that gospel become more attractive because of the purity of motive in presenting it through our very lives? Ultimately, it's a very simple question. Do we love Jesus? Jesus.